<clears throat> All right, we are live, and this is 20 Questions with Pastor Mike. That's me, and I'm answering your questions today about Jesus, Christianity, the Bible, the Christian worldview, Christian life, secularism, atheism, gummy bears, whatever. So here we go. The first question from today, for today, is going to be from Anonymous, who I don't know if they're anonymous or if that is their actual first name. So who knows? There's really no way to tell. And the question is, from a biblical and practical standpoint, is there a maximum number of people that can or should make up a local church? Assuming their doctrine is biblical, can a megachurch with multiple satellites or campuses be an effective church? And this is, um, I, I've, I've not, okay, I've been to, attended, you know, and been part of what you would consider a mega church many, many years ago. I'm not now, and, and, and I'm not like in the past 20 years, ha, ha, I have not been, um, you know, what you consider part of a mega church, but you consider like a mid-sized church. But I have heard from especially those who are part of the home church movement, I'm just being honest with you guys, okay, like animosity towards mega churches. And I've heard many who, you know, church that has like a thousand or two thousand or more people that I've heard real animosity from people towards megachurches with these real blanket statements. Like megachurch becomes a pejorative term. It just is a way of saying this is a compromised church. This is a messed up church. This is a problematic church. And I think that this is primarily symptomatic of um, some good examples of bad churches combined with general normal human prejudice, prejudicial behavior where I take the examples of some who go wrong and I project that on everybody who has a big church. But I want you to imagine for a second that you're a, a Christian who you're a ministry, you're serving in the church and your church just starts blowing up. People just start getting saved, attending your church and the, and the numbers grow, grow, grow. And you have to get into a bigger building and then another bigger building. And you're like, what's going on? This is amazing. Let's just see if we, let's just service these people as best we can. And then you start getting emails from people talking about how your church is literally evil and obviously this is not the anonymous question here, but this is the topic that it brings up. You get emails from people and messages that your church is literally evil because a lot of people attend it. That's what I'm going to push back on. I'm going to be like, um, no, that's weird. So let's just start with uh, scripture here. Acts 2.42 gives us an, uh, an example of what the early church was like. Actually, I'll back up to 2.41. And here it tells us, so those who received his word were baptized and there were added to that day about 3,000 souls that day to the to the church. And this is the church in Jerusalem. And they did become a local group, a communal group of, of people. In one day, they got 3,000. Shortly thereafter, many thousands more were added um, in some ways. Okay, not literally. This is not a mega church because the facilities and the amplification with modern, you know, Electricity and all that just didn't exist back then. So this is not, not a parallel to a mega church. But in some ways, it's it's like the closest overlap we get is the, is Jerusalem. What was going on in the first century, what was going on right after Pentecost, tons of people were added. And here's what they did. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the, to the breaking of bread and prayers. This, Im, this could imply to many people purely a home church environment. If we're just asking in Acts. What are they doing? Is there anything like mass gatherings? Or perhaps is the early church putting a bar on mass gatherings and like limiting it to say 12 people, 15, 20 people? Well, if they're gathering and breaking bread, this could imply 
smaller gatherings, but let's keep reading. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together um, and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and all and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple and listen to this. This is the part I want us to hone in on. We've got the number over 3000 the first day. Many, many more were added shortly after. So many thousands and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. They continued to just grow, grow, grow. They're doing two things in the, in the book of Acts here. They have large gatherings in the temple, which would have had potentially very large numbers of people attending because the temple outer courts was, was a massive area. And then they also would meet in homes and break bread together. Meaning that at the very beginning, the church is, is doing kind of like both. It has these large gatherings that could have been in the temple. We don't want to read too much into the text here. It could be that like they would gather near Solomon's portico we get from Acts 5.13. I'll just read it to you here. Um, and then I'll talk about how this what this might have looked like. So we don't overstep the evidence, right? Um, it says that uh, none of the rest dare join them. But the, uh, oh, did I get the right verse? 5.13 or 5.3 was it? No, what's the verse? Oh, here it is. 512. And now many signs and wonders were regularly done among, uh, among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. So um, this is a real specific kind of statement here that that it seems like a very large number of, of, of the believers were here, still early church, still Jerusalem, gathered at Solomon's portico. Now in the temple precincts, you've got... Um, You've got the the actual temple itself, which isn't that big of a building, but it's you know it's it's significant and impressive. It was gold and stuff on it. Um, then you have outside of that temple area, or just in front of it, you have like the courtyard where the priests could go, and 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 you keep going. Eventually, you get to the the court of women, and then outside of that, you have the court of the Gentiles. In, now that's the area all around the temple. It's a very large area. Along one side of that is something called Solomon's Portico or Solomon's Porch. You could fit lots and lots of people here, not just under the actual porch where the columns were, but you could spill out into the court of Gentiles. So they're all gathered together. We don't know if this was with one speaker who would stand up and, and shout things so people could hear him, or if they would split up. They got multiple disciples, multiple apostles. Maybe they split up into individual groups, but they're gathered mass mass gatherings right at, at, the, uh, at the temple. And they're gathered in their homes, breaking bread. It's both. Other than that, the scripture doesn't really um, give us a lot of details here. In, in the New Testament times, we we seem to have people just gathering without clear policies on how many Christians are supposed to gather at a local area. They just did whatever was needed for the crowds at the time. But even when they gathered in large numbers at a temple, they still gathered in their homes because Christianity is a fellowship. And this is, this is something we want to have in place for our, our congregations. Are we gathering in fellowship with each other or are we merely gathering to hear teaching? You can have a megachurch that has massive gatherings for teaching, but that's not enough. And most megachurches, I think, realize this. They realize that's not enough for the body of Christ here. Like these people need to be in fellowship. So often they plan discipleship groups and home studies and fellowships and all this sort of thing to try to create that smaller, intimate, relational thing that's very important for the body of Christ. So to answer your question, Anonymous, your question was, um, 
is there a, a maximum number of people that can or should make up a local church? No. Um, I think the church is made up of whoever happens to be there that's Christian. And assuming their doctrine is biblical, can a mega church with multiple satellite sites be an effective church? Yes. I, I don't see why they can't. It just means they're going to have some natural pitfalls. So let me just, before I move on to question two for today, here are some potential pitfalls of mega churches. I'm going to follow it up with some potential pitfalls of little churches. I just want us to see that there are pitfalls on both sides, and then it will make us more sober and we'll recognize we shouldn't discount little churches or discount big ones. We should be aware of the potential pitfalls so we can honor Christ in whatever ministry he's got us. So big, big churches, mega churches, um, probably the biggest potential pitfalls is that crowd size instead of discipleship becomes the goal. Jesus was never like this for sure, right? He definitely had lots and lots of followers at various times, but it was never his goal to have lots and lots. It was his goal to have genuine followers. And so we read about things like in John 6, where Christ turns to his disciples and he gives them this really hard teaching, which he doesn't even, I mean, he gives them the, the, the things they need to recognize the real teaching that's in there, but he doesn't mind giving them a hard teaching that causes many of them to fall away and stop following him. Because Jesus is more interested in genuine followers than merely attendance. And in a, a large church environment, sometimes the, the, the gears get shifting and everything starts to get focused on largest number of people here. That doesn't mean it always is the case, but it is a potential pitfall. Crowd size instead of genuine discipleship, it becomes the goal. And if a teacher says something, you know, from the pulpit that, um, that causes numbers of people to leave the fellowship or stop donating because maybe they're worldly. Maybe they're ungodly and they're, and they're, they don't like, they don't like that hard teaching from Jesus. Right? So they, they stop. Then the board comes to the pastor and is like, yeah, we'd rather you not talk about those issues. So they start dancing around some of the major issues that people need to hear the most, right? Like homosexuality, right? Like, 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 like hell or like the, the exclusivity of Christ, um, or false religions or false teachers that are, that are popular in our times. These are things that we need, you know, the church has to talk about, um, about talking about the issues where politics is invading our Christian worldview and faith and trying to sort of hijack it in the name of politics. Like, I think that's a healthy thing to talk about, but it, it reduces church numbers, <laughs> um, numbers, but not followers of Christ. So there can be like a cultural sensitivity, um, that, that could be healthy. I'm aware of our, our cultural situation that's going on right now. And I, and I know how to speak to that. That's a healthy thing, but there can also be bowing to culture, right? which is what we see with, with like Joel Osteen. I think there's a, 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 a certain degree of bowing to culture or we saw with um, back in the day before everything exploded for him, Carl Lentz, when he was up on Oprah's show, here's a mega church pastor who's confronted on, uh, was it not Oprah's show it was on, he did on Oprah and some other show, but he's confronted with tough issues like on abortion or the exclusivity of Christ. And he just kind of like, just turns into a wet noodle, right? <laughs> and it's because it would, it would hurt the numbers even though it would help real discipleship to talk about those things. So potential pitfalls of little churches, lower standards. Um, I mean, little churches, often the people serving in ministry are just there because they're the only people available. This person's doing children's ministry because they're literally the only person who's able and willing, and they may not be that good at it. So you, you often have such a slim selection of potential people to serve that the standards for people serving and their ability to do well in those ministries is lowered. Um, there can also be no drive to evangelize. There can be no drive to evangelize because people just become comfortable. This doesn't mean it happens. It's just a potential pitfall, right? People are comfortable. They have their, 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 their community that they really enjoy and love. And so the push to bring people to Christ isn't there. 
Um, and the Lord's standard, the Lord's standards can affect teaching as well. If you have a home church, your entire church is eight people that gather in your home. You have among eight people, you have to pick a teacher and maybe you rotate, but is your teacher going to be that great with only a, you know, a potential pool of teachers of eight, whereas like a church that has hundreds and hundreds might be able to select a different, might be able to afford to send that person to school to, to give them uh, more resources and study materials and help, you know, help them equip them better so they could bless the people better. So that's a potential pitfall. So there are pitfalls that both of them have. Um, both mega churches and little churches, lack of Christian community can actually happen in both size, sizes of churches, authoritarian leadership. That happens all the time, right? Jesus warned us against this because he knows it's our tendency to not only lead with authority, but to be authoritarian leaders. That's a real issue where leaders start thinking that loyalty to themselves is the number one thing they want to see in the staff of their church or in the, in the home. Um, and so I've seen plenty of, of little tyrants, right? People, whether they're, whether they have a large number or a small number of followers, um, it becomes a one-man show. It can be that in a little church or a big church. Um, and bad theology is always an issue for any church, potentially. So there's some of my thoughts on that. The numbers thing is just creates us, uh, gives us with, gives us some different um, pit, potential pitfalls. And the solution is always coming back to the basics of Christianity and trying to mirror what we see in in the Bible, the New Testament. And if you think it's your church's job to corporately make you fellowship with other believers, then I think that you're the one dropping the ball. It's not your church, this like faceless organizational thing. You and me as Christians, like I need to be in fellowship. That's my chat, my job. I don't have to have somebody plan it, organize it and force me to do it. Um, all right, moving forward. Question number two, Tank McCoy says, if Mary was aware of the immaculate conception visited by an angel, etc." Why in Mark 2, 20 through 34, does it seem she's surprised about Jesus being the Messiah? Scripture says his family that goes to take charge of him um, for being out of his mind are his mother and brothers. Why would Mary think he's out of his mind if she'd been visited by an angel? Okay, Mark 2, let's look at the passage, verse 20 through 34. We're going to read it in, in full, if I can type it properly. All right, Mark 2.20, and then we'll talk about this. Um, was Mary unaware of the immaculate conception based upon this passage? Does it produce an inconsistency where we should think, based on what Mark says here, Mary really didn't know about the, the um, you say immaculate conception. I, that's actually a doctrine about Mary. It's, that's a, you mean the virgin birth. <laughs> so, um Okay, anyway, we'll, we'll talk about, we'll talk about the virgin birth here. Tank McCoy. So number, verse 20, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. I do have the right passage, don't I? Um, I don't think that this is the verse you wanted. Mark 2. Oh man, where is it? Where, where they come to Jesus. Maybe someone in live chat could help us find out. We're, we're looking for the passage where they come to Jesus and they ask him, um, hey, your mother and brothers are outside and wanting to see you. And he says, oh, but these are my brother and brothers and sisters and stuff like that. Um, Mark three. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, 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 no. Let me see. Yeah. 
I'm going to read this passage thinking it's the right one. It happens in live chat. You're typing things in and things get typed in wrong. Uh, no worries. So Mark 3.31. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him and a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, hey, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. This is similar to in Luke um, where there's like this moment where the, um, the ministry of Jesus is going to be hindered by his commitment to his family, potentially, right? Like he has to pick between the things that God's calling him to do versus the things that his family wants him to do. And in Luke, it's when he's at the temple, he's, didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? Here, it's later in his, in his ministry. And a crowd was sitting around him. They said, hey, your mother and brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and brothers? Looking about at those who, who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, this is my mother and sister and brother. Um, it may actually not even be Mark that you're thinking of. I mean, there, this is a similar passage. Okay, here's the bottom line. The passage that I'm not immediately remembering off the top of my head because I have not memorized the entire Bible is that where they, they think that Jesus is beside himself, one translation says, or that he's basically like, he's going crazy. Um, it does say collectively, they thought this. Uh, now you may think Mary thinks this. Mary though is a complicated person with conflicting information, at least for her. And here's the source of the conflicting information. She definitely knows Jesus is... Um, miraculously conceived. Like she knows that, okay, based on the, on the teaching of scripture. But here's the conflicting part. She thinks the Messiah is going to perform certain functions because all the Jews at the time think this. This is what Mark gets at over and over again um, and the other gospels. What Jesus gets at over and over again is that they had high messianic, messianic expectations but wrong messianic expectations. And so they weren't wrong about how high they were, about how important the Messiah was or how central he was. They were wrong about what he was going to accomplish when he showed up. And so that's why it's confusing. Jesus goes out and he doesn't go through the normal procedure they would have expected the Messiah to go through. He's teaching people things that are a little different than what they were expecting Jesus to have taught if he's the Messiah. He's doing things. I mean, he's doing the miracles. He's healing people. He's casting out demons. He's doing all this stuff. But he's also not going to overthrow Rome. And he's not teaching in a way that suggests he's going to overthrow Rome. He's not fulfilling their expectations. So this is this is the big pivot moment where we go from Old Testament, all the teaching about the Messiah, to New Testament times, wrong expectations about the Messiah, where Jesus actually shows up and says, here's who I really am. Here's what I'm really going to do. It's consistent with the old, but it's not consistent with their expectations. That's, I think, what Mary's dealing with here. Um, this is why she's conflicted. She doesn't just think, oh, he's just a nobody. He, he's just a normal person. But she also doesn't think that he's doing what she expected him to do. And so um, Mary was not in on it all. Okay. She knew something about Christ, but she didn't know all about his mission. She didn't know all about it. She knew like something foreboding about it. You know, a sword will pierce your heart also. But she didn't get all the details. So I think that what we should do is say, um, Mary uh, being with her brothers, with Jesus's brothers in trying to like sort of put a stop to Jesus. She's part of a group right here. So it's not like she's driving at all. The brothers are there too. So maybe they're even the one driving it. Come on, mom, we need to go get Jesus. He's being wacky. Um, she's at least confused and conflicted. And that would be explainable to the messianic expectations of the time. I think I, hopefully that helps you. Sorry about the scripture reference not being there for us. Raptor Films, a big defense for Christianity is that the apostles died and were tortured 
Never recanting Jesus. How are the Heaven's Gate and Jonestown 1978 incidents any different? They all willingly died for a lie too. This is a great question. And I think the difference is going to strengthen your confidence. I think it's going to strengthen it. Okay. So um, we say, hey, the apostles died and were tortured, never recanting Jesus. The important and the clear way to say it for me would be they were willing to suffer for their claim that Jesus had raised from the dead. And then let's slow our thinking a little bit and say, and what we're getting from that is that they were sincere. Okay, that the same can be said for a few of the members of Jonestown uh, and Heaven's Gate. Now, Jonestown Massacre, I don't know as much about Heaven's Gate, but Jonestown, they were actually, uh, not all the members knew what they were doing. Not all of them knew. And they were forced into into it in some cases. So the Jonestown massacre is not ex- exactly a situation of mass suicide intentional. It's more like mass murder um, with a few people being aware. That, at least that's my understanding of Jonestown. So it doesn't actually parallel at, at that point. The um, Heaven's Gate thing, I I don't know. I don't know. Were they, were, they, were they all aware that whatever they were eating or drinking or killing themselves with that that was going to kill them or were they being lied to about it? Um, in which case, I think the leaders were at least sincere or they were so um, so wrapped up in what's called enmeshment in in domestic violence counseling, where where the leaders like, look, if 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 uh, if if I'm no longer going to lead these people, then 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 there's no point in life because I see them as being part of my identity, and so I'm going to kill myself and I'm going to kill them too, and so it's like a murder suicide thing. Anyway, all that being said, let's pretend they were all totally sincere then we're drawing the same conclusion like that they all knowingly and thoughtfully and intended to commit suicide. We're drawing the same conclusion about this group, rightly so, that we would draw about the disciples, that they were sincere. Now we add one more element that shows you the big difference, the gaping chasm between Heaven's Gate, Jonestown, and Christianity. And that is the members of Heaven's Gate and Jonestown, unlike the, the apostles, would not have any way of knowing whether what they saw was real or not because there's no... There's no seeing anything. We would only say that they believed sincerely that their charismatic leaders were honest and true. That's all they believed. That's like our conclusion. On the other hand, with Christianity, it's not just them believing that Jesus, their charismatic leader, some would say, is, is sincere and true. It's them believing they saw him physically alive from the dead. This is a very different claim. So if they're willing to suffer because they sincerely believe they saw Jesus alive from the dead, that's a significant piece of evidence for Christianity, the genuineness of the apostles. You can add to this the unlikelihood of hallucinations, which seems preposterous. It would be a miracle <laughs> for hallucinations to function in that way. Um, you can add to this that their their intimate awareness with death, in their, especially in their culture, but also their disinclination. Here's other items you can add. Their disinclination to believe that seeing an, uh, an apparition or an image of somebody meant they were alive. When they saw something, if they did, they would have thought it was a ghost. Jesus had to go through labors to show them that he was alive. Eat with them. Let them touch him, right, Thomas? Things like this to prove that he's alive and it's not a ghost. All that being said, um, the willingness to die for your beliefs shows you're sincere in your beliefs. That's what it shows. Now, add to it, what they're being sincere about is something they would have been in a position to know the truth about, whether Jesus had really risen or not. Were they making it up or, or not? So it strengthens Christianity. Um, but the other people in 
other cults, religions, groups don't aren't in a position to know the truth of those religions in a way that the apostles were to know the truth of the resurrection. Number four, and I just want to clear something up for you guys. These gummy bears, I get I get messages sometimes. You know, theories about the gummy bears on my, on my desk, and the theories are like, you know, how many how many gummy bears uh, are in the jar? I have no idea. I'm not going to count them. Sorry. Um, other ones though are that I eat all the red ones and I just want to say like I know on your camera on the camera it, it looks like they're all orange and but there's a bunch of red ones in here it's just the way the camera is it's like orange yellow red they're all there but you just I guess you can't tell I just want you to know like yeah I, I, I eat my gummy bears in an unbiased way and then I secretly refill the jar when no one's looking all right question number four Moses says um Moses A says, Pastor Mike, greetings from Mumbai, India. Well, hello. Your ministry has been a great blessing to, uh, for me and my wife who are the, um, who are, I'm glad to hear that, by the way, Moses, who are the called and chosen ones in Matthew twenty two fourteen? Is it God who does both the calling and the choosing? Matthew twenty two fourteen. Let's look at the passage together. So first thing you'll notice is this. It's for many are called, but few are chosen. This is, this is the conclusion of a parable, or, or not a parable, but rather an, a story, a teaching of Jesus. So we're going to have to read the whole teaching to understand it. So let's back up and let's talk about the parable of the wedding feast here in Matthew 22. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Okay, the, the king is obviously God the Father. The son is obviously Jesus, right? God the Son. Um, and the wedding feast is is this sort of like, there's all these messy, and I'm just going to skip to the <laughs> to the end because of how quick I want to move through this passage uh, of my interpretation here. Um, the wedding feast is like the stepping into the fullness of the kingdom, the, the new covenant, basically salvation and eternal joys. Um, so he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. Okay, the people who were invited are a particular group, but they would not come. They're not interested. Again, he sent other servants telling, saying, tell those who are invited, remember they're invited, this is one group, See, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm and another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Okay, let me just give you the groups. The invited group are the Jews. And the servants who go to bring them to the wedding feast are the prophets, including ultimately John the Baptist, who is like the final of those sort of Old Testament prophets. And they're inviting them to Jesus. They're all speaking of Christ. Jesus says that, you know, all the scriptures, they're of him. They're written of him. So they treat them shamefully, even kill them. The king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. This is about the future destruction of Jerusalem, which happened in 70 AD. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready. But those who were, uh, those invited, the Jews, right, were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out. This is a sec second group. We have the invited ones, the Jews. Then we have the second group, this, which can be the Gentiles. Uh, um, uh, uh, you could say that the invited group are the Jewish leaders, but I, I don't know. I feel like we're not probably shouldn't try to like parse it too, like dissect it too strictly here. But it's definitely a Jewish leaning 
audience, right? And then they're going to invite as many as they find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. Like no matter who they were, they're all invited. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, now here's a third issue. So a bunch of Gentiles get saved, right? The Jews reject their Messiah, not all of them. <laughs> Every, the early church was all Jews, but all Jews were not the early church. That's the problem, right? Overall, the gospel was, uh, and, and Christ was overall rejected by the community. And, um, and it was only a, a portion who received. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was, uh, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. Okay, he doesn't belong. There's something wrong. He doesn't have a garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is obviously too big of a response to someone who doesn't have the right garment at a wedding. But that's because it's a parable, okay? So the the, the wedding garment obviously is illustrating some much bigger, more important, more essential quality, which we're going to say, it means that they, they're actually, I'll just say, they're, they're, they're actually accepting of the gospel of Christ. So they part to be, try to be part of the church, but they hadn't truly received Christ. And so they're cast out. Um, For many are called, but few are chosen. Then there's that phrase that you asked about. So my understanding would be, many are called, that refers to both groups, Jews, Gentiles. They all get called. Every and Here, the calling goes out to all sorts of people, but few are chosen chosen refers to the group of people who actually end up being saved uh, which in includes having the wedding garment so you've responded to the invitation you came and you became part of the body of christ genuinely you're the chosen now the way um uh some now here's what some would do with this in my opinion they would they would come to this with their other theological conclusions already in place i'm not saying those conclusions are right or wrong what I'm suggesting is this verse doesn't give you these conclusions. You bring them with you. So you might have them well-established. You might not, but you're bringing them with you. You're not getting them from this verse. So many are called. This could refer to the gospel. Like say, if you're a Calvinist, could refer to the gospel going out to all people, right? But few are chosen. Only the elect get saved. Okay. But, but the terms of, um, there are concepts of total depravity, of total total inability, and of regeneration preceding faith. Those things are read into it if you think chosen means that. Um, the the, the non-Calvinist, could, like myself, could look at this and say, oh, many are called. The gospel genuinely goes out to all. That's the whole context of the prayer. Like, genuinely goes out to all. The chosen ones are those who ultimately have received the gospel and have come. But I'm reading all that into the text. I shouldn't, I should establish those things elsewhere, probably. There's my thoughts on that. Number five, Blue Clouds has a question. What do you say to people who claim that the name Jesus really means Hail Zeus? They say one is unknowingly doing witchcraft by using the name Jesus. Why didn't his name just continue as Yeshua? Um, okay, Blue Clouds. Um, this is definitely like, uh, I'm just going to be really straight. Anybody who says Jesus means Hail Zeus, they're on the fringes of, of like conspiracy, wackadoodle, totally unsubstantiated stuff. It's just, it's nuts. Okay. Hail Zeus. Um, Hail Zeus is English, right? <laughs> like Hail Zeus is English. But if you're looking at like ancient, like names, Jesus in Greek is Iesus. But if you said Hail Zeus in Greek, you didn't say Hail Zeus, like in, in English. And, and it's just, it's just words that sound similar across various language. 
Like, what if, I mean, this would be like, honestly, this is on the level of saying that Jesus really means Cheez-Its. And whenever you say, uh, I love Jesus, you're really a pagan who's a glutton who's saying you love Cheez-Its and you're really like eating those little cheesy crackers. Like, <laughs> it's it's that level of, of linguistic garbage. It's just terrible. So, yeah. Here's how the naming stuff has happened. Um, you know, in, in different languages, we have the same name sounding different. Okay, my name's Michael, but in, say, in, in French, you might say Michel. In um, Spanish, Miguel, right? In, say, uh, I think in Ukraine, it'd be like Mikhail. Um, and and other, other ways of saying my name in different languages. And you might have a language where they have no M sound, M. So you'd have to come up with something else to replace that. So you, you start to have different sounding words in different cultures. Jesus is known by many names, right? He is known, <clears throat> but it's all the same name, but it's in different languages. So, you know, he's known as Jesus, Yeshua, Jesus, Isa. Isa is, is, is Arabic. That's for Jesus. Um, in other, other languages, you, you go around the world, you're going to see lots and lots of different languages for, you know, translating the same name. And that's what happened. So Old Testament... Um, I should say Old Testament language, Hebrew, Jesus' name was Yeshua. But in a Greek-speaking culture, they're not going to say Yeshua. That doesn't fit their Greek, so they're going to say Jesus. And that part of that's because they have rules about how you end words. Like the extra S at the end there, the sigma, that's just part of the Greek stuff. You put, a, you put a sigma there. So then you go from that into other languages, other languages. The, the ye, the ie becomes j, right? The, and this is just how language evolves and changes over time. If there's no conspiracy. Jesus, just like me, I don't care if, if I went and you called me Miguel, but I still have family to this day who call me Miguel. I, I don't know why. Ever since I was a kid, they call me like Miguelito because okay? my dad's name is also Mike. And so, so I'd be like Miguelito and, and I don't care. I respond to it. I, I don't even notice it when someone's like Miguel and I turn and look, I didn't even notice they called me by, I think it's the same for Jesus. Um, Jesus, Yeshua, Lord, Savior. He knows who you're talking to, who you're talking about. Um, it doesn't mean hail Zeus. It's just going from the Hebrew, which means uh, God is salvation, Yeshua, God is salvation, into into Greek with weird changes that happen because you go from one language to another. You go into Latin. You go from the Latin over to English. Eventually, you get Jesus. That's it. All right. We're, we have our all our questions. We got all 20 questions fully prepared. I'm just going to read through them now. Number six, anonymous question. Is John 15 works-based? Verse 10 says, oh, you know what? Let me back up before. Okay. Before I go to six, I want to offer a biblical proof that it's okay to pronounce Jesus's name in different ways. God saw fit that even though his name was, and his parents would call him Yeshua, he, he saw fit to allow his name to be recorded Jesus in Greek in the new Testament. God himself gave us Jesus's name in a second language from its original, his original naming. So anybody who thinks, um, I'm honoring Christ more by saying Yeshua is it, you can, if you want, but it's just personal preference. It's nothing spiritual. It's not, it's, there's nothing there. It's just something you want to do. Um, I always think it's weird when people randomly decide to use, uh, Hebrew words embedded into their Christian life as if they're like, extra authentic, extra spiritual. Like why isn't the new Testament written in Hebrew? If that's what something God wants us to do. All right. Number six, anonymous question is John 15 works based verse 10 says this. If you keep my commandments, then you will abide in my love. That sounds like obedience earns God's love contrary to the gospel. What does a life of abiding look like daily? 
Um, all right, let's let's look at John 15. I think that one of the issues here um, is going to be that you know we approach between Protestants and and um, Roman Catholics in particular. Um, the Eastern Orthodox like to look and be like, "Ha, huh, you got we agree with everything," and it, they end up to us. They sound like they're just talking two different ways at the same time. But um, but but especially with the Reformation, in, in light of the Reformation, we're we're reading the debate about the doctrine of justification. And we're reading that into every passage. We're coming with that. With that, it's not, I wouldn't necessarily call it baggage, but I would say that very real and very good concern about how justification works. And we can read that into places where the Bible is just simply not talking about that issue at all. I think that happens in the book of John a lot. Um, so let me read the passage to you. Try to think of it through the question of like Protestants, Catholics, justification. And then I'm going to read it to you. And what I think is the proper, I think, my opinion here. I could be wrong for your consideration. I think it's the proper context. So here we go. John 15. I am the true vine and my father's the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Okay. So then they say, well, like, so if you don't bear fruit, he takes you. So if you're not, if you don't live good enough, you get removed from Christ. That would be one way of interpreting it. Now, some would then say, oh, but no, the debate is he takes away. That, that's a word there that can actually mean he lifts up. And it's a pruning thing where you're not taking the branch away. It's just mistranslated. You're lifting it up to pull it out of the dirt, out of the world, out of the muck, so that it might bear more fruit. So it's just like a, it's like a similar to being pruned. Um, so they have that debate. Verse three, already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. Verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Um, then he gives this commandment. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Okay, so, so you know, you need to love others because that in doing that, you're abiding in me. And abiding in me, you're bearing fruit. And it seems almost like circular a bit, not in a bad way, but in a real way, you're abiding in me. You're, if you abide in me, you're going to bear fruit. If you're, if you keep my commandments, you're going to abide in me. They seem to be connected. Okay. The two seem to be intimately connected. Okay. From a, uh, Catholic Protestant debate, we could be asking questions like, um, uh, you know, am I doing these good works to be saved or am I saved? And that's causing me to do these good works. Which one's causing the other? And that, you, that's an okay question to ask, but that might actually miss some of the context here. I think the, the Jewish context of Jesus coming and the overall gospel of John, what it presents is that there's this people of God, the Jews, who when the light of the world shows up, they find out that they're actually many of them in darkness. And so Jesus, many of the things he says in John, John 6, John 15, He's saying to a group of a community of the Jews who feel that they're all secure in their Jewishness and in their, in their salvation because of it. 
And he's saying, no, it's about me. So in the beginning, when he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches, he actually reverses their understanding. They thought Israel's the vine. Old Testament analogy here, Israel's the vine, right? And the Messiah comes from Israel, but Jesus shows up and he's like, hey, I am the vine. And Jews, it is your commitment to me, your Messiah, that establishes you as branches who are part of this thing. You're an optional part of, of, of the vine, which is me. You aren't the vine itself. That's actually pretty intense in that Jewish context. And so here, what we're talking about is not believers who are, this is, this is the big reveal in John 15. It's not believers who are saved and whether they stay saved or not. It's rather a community of people who've been prepared for the Messiah. And the question is, will they be the people of God if, they be, if they're part of the Messiah, they will. And if they're not, they won't. And that puts a different spin and context on the whole thing. It's not about you as a Christian, wait, am, am I um, doing this abiding thing well enough to stay in Jesus? But no, your whole relationship with God is through Jesus. Like that's what it means to abide. You're abiding because you're in Christ. Then you get to the second issue, which is justification. How does it take place? Which is not the focus of the passage. I think that that issue comes back to um, the order of, of the events. He's like, hey, if you abide in me, you will bear fruit. This is an automatic result of abiding in me. If you bear fruit, you will remain in me. Okay, yes, it's one is the cause of bearing fruit is abiding in Jesus. The fruit is evidence that you are abiding in Christ. And I think this is how it's handled throughout scripture. How I get saved is by faith. How I demonstrate my salvation to others, my genuineness, is through my serving of the Lord, my, my the, the works that come from my life. I, I can't show you my faith, but I can show you my faith by my works how I demonstrate it, not how I get it, but how I show it. So um, I get my driver's license by taking the driver's test. I show you I have a driver's license by showing you my driver. Like, but how I get it and how I show it, it's not the same. I'm not going to show you my driver's license. That would be unwise. But, <laughs> but I hope that that makes sense. Um, what does abiding look like daily? Uh, abiding means that you, you secure your entire relationship with God through Jesus. He's the vine. It's not your community. It's not your, your namesake of your people. It's Jesus. He is my entire connection to God. My connection to life is through Christ. He is the sole cause of my salvation. Boom, Jesus. That's what abiding looks like. And then it bears fruit. That's what it looks like for you. But to others, it bears fruit in you loving others. And if you are born of God, you will love others. It's a result. That's how I would see it. I hope I have brought more clarity than confusion. <laughs> Joshua Adamu says, Hey, Pastor Mike. Hey, Joshua. Yeshua. Jesus. <laughs> um, I've recently found a renewed desire to get closer with God and was wondering if you have any advice on how to do so. I appreciate the impact your ministry's had on my life. Um, I like the, the, the Ephesus advice Jesus gives in, in Revelation 3. He tells the church in Ephesus, to go and do the first works. And so, you know, Joshua, look back in your own personal walk with Christ. What things did you have you done when you have been the most centered upon Jesus, you know, in your mind, very aware of the goodness and glory and calling of God and that like just knowing God and loving God was all of life. Like at those moments where you're at that place, what naturally grew out of that? Go back to those things. Jesus tells Ephesus they left, they left their first love and part of his solution is to do the first works. Meaning that they had this previous time where they were just in love with God and then there were natural things they did that grew out of that. And so he's like, go back and do those things. 
go back and do those things. So for me, this might mean just I pick up my guitar and no one's in a room, I'm alone, and I'm just worshiping the Lord and I'm singing a song to God. Just a little simple thing like that. Um, putting the Bible on audio and just listening to it. I, I, this is just an, uh, something that for me is like a first work. It's like I go back to that. Um, serving in your local fellowship in any way you can, where you just, you just, you just, oh, I just want to serve the Lord. Can I do something for God? There's just things that grow naturally. And I'd recommend you do those things. Um, yeah, that's great, Joshua. Very happy to hear that you're being stirred up, man. Yeah, go for it. <clears throat> Number eight, and this one is from Sam Weiss. Oh, Sam Weiss. I just, I just immediately flashed into your life and how many people have probably called you Sam Weiss Gamgee. Um, Sam Weiss the Brave. Anyway, uh, that's a great name to have. So <laughs> Sam, Sam is a great character. So Sam Weiss says, does Jeremiah 7.22 and Matthew 9.13 indicate God never ordained animal sacrifices? Oh, I'm so glad you're asking this because I'm passionate about this issue. To me, it seems God has gradually moved mankind away from sacrifices and idol worship and into his ideal form of religion. So Sam, I'm going to say I'm a little hesitant to take these gradual movement. Now, I'm not saying it never applies, but when we... Um, when we have a, what we'll call a hermeneutic of projection, this is a term I'm making up right now. So forgive me if no one's heard it, um, where we look at the Bible and we think I'm going to draw a line from, from like where the Bible is in the old Testament, where it is in the new Testament. And then I'll draw a line going forward, which is where I think it wants me to be eventually. When I do that, I end up in places the Bible doesn't want me to be eventually. Um, and that can be a general hermeneutical approach that I see coming from progressive Christians especially because it, it lets them disagree with the actual clear teachings of Scripture because they go, ah, oh, but but this is the direction. It's heading here. Trust me. This is the justice the Bible is is moving us toward. Now, it's true that in some cases, like there's things where there is a projection, but it seems to me to be the exception and not the rule. When it comes to sacrifices, this is not a place where I think we see this kind of projection. I don't think we see that at all. So let's look at the two passages you mentioned. Um, I will mention real quick, my understanding of this, um, Sam, Sam Weiss the Brave, is that the Old Testament um, definitely sets up and endorses animal sacrifices, not as just acquiescing to like cultural things of the time, but as a way of illustrating how salvation works, Right. And then Jesus comes and fulfills those with a, the sacrifice of himself as the ultimate sacrifice. That's how Hebrews, Hebrews doesn't, you know, the book of Hebrews, which I'm teaching in a few months here, um, it doesn't present it like a projection. It's, it's more like, um, set up and fulfillment, right? Or if it was a joke, it'd be like the setup and the punchline. <laughs> so except here, it's not a joke, but there's like a setup of all these animal sacrifices of the idea of sin and a sacrifice needing to be paid. This sacrifice has to be pure. It actually is going to cost something. It's going to involve death, um, all that stuff. And it hurts it. You feel that, oh, that's sad. Then you have Jesus who comes and he embodies all of that. He's the perfect sacrifice who dies for our sin. This is what the new Testament says. He fulfills the animal sacrifices. That is why they're no longer needed. Fulfilled, not because they were abhorrent or problematic. But let's look at the passages. Jeremiah um, 7.22. And here, um, put it on your screen as well. Let's see. Thus says, the, I'm going to start at verse 21. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. 
add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat the flesh. For in the day I brought that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. Okay, this is hard to understand when you read it out of context, but I think what he's saying here in Jeremiah, God is saying, get all your burnt offerings and sacrifices, all the stuff that you were going to give me and just eat it. I don't want it. Okay, that's why he's saying eat it because burnt offerings would not be eaten. They would be wholly consumed. So he's, he says, take the burnt offerings, add it all your, and just go eat it. I, I don't want it. Okay, that he is saying here, right? Uh, verse 22, um, he says, but for in the day I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers to command them or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this command I gave them, obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people and walk in all the way that I command you that I may be well, that it may be well with you. But they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts and they, and they backslide. So here's how I think a revisionist would interpret this passage. Ah, I know in Exodus, we read about sacrifices in the book of Exodus. In, in Leviticus, we read a lot of instructions about sacrifices. But here, God says, I never told you all that. I never gave you sacrifices. You So man must have, this is like the Greg Boyd version, <laughs> maybe. Um, I don't know if he does it with this passage, but it's that style of hermeneutic or Brian Zond. Um, oh, man must have added these sacrifices in. It was God just sort of like letting them do their own thing, but he never commanded them. Actually, it's not about God never commanded them at all. It's about when God commanded them in order of priority. When they first got brought out of Egypt, he wanted them of first priority to simply obey him and follow him. That was the number one priority. Follow and obey me. Then he did give them commands about sacrifices. But in Jeremiah's day, they reversed this. They thought they're, they're basically committing sacrifices as a way of like indulgences of, I'm going to go ahead and old school indulgences. I'm going to go ahead and sin. And I'm just going to have a sacrifice to cover it. No problem. I, I'm not concerned with obeying God and having relationship with him. I'm just going to do what I want. And it's okay. I, I'm going to have some sacrifices. Um, so that's what he's getting at. Uh, to suggest that it means God's like opposed to sacrifices would be to disagree with Jeremiah. The rest, read the whole book of Jeremiah and just follow everything he says about sacrifice in there. Including predictions about the future and sacrifices. Um, and we disagree with lots and lots of scripture. So in context, I think it, it means something different. Matthew 9, 13, it says, um, this is the New Testament verse you mentioned. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene, no, that's not Matthew 9, 13. That's Matthew. It's a good verse, but it's not what we're looking for. Matthew 9, 13, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Um, so this is again, an issue of priority. Um, the Lord delights in mercy and not sacrifice. What here, same issue that's going on in the Old Testament where they um, they ignore the moral calling of God, right? To be a godly people and they just offer a sacrifice instead. I want you to be merciful to your fellow man. I don't want you to just offer a sacrifice for the cruelties you present to others. That, that That's the point that God's getting at here. Jesus is talking about this as well. When they... Um, when, well, he says to them in the verse prior, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, like he's come here to heal people and to help people. And they don't understand God's care for people. So they don't understand Jesus's mission. So I, yeah. Um, uh, guys like Brian Zond, and maybe you've heard of Brian Zond, Sam. Maybe you've heard of Brian Zond. He tries to present the Bible like there's an actual conflict. Like there's different theologies in the Bible that are 
aggressively arguing with each other. And the one that wins is the one that rejects sacrifice. Jesus presents it very differently. He, he's the same one who says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, meaning God's priority is that you live rightly, not that, not that you, uh, just, you know, and love others and be kind to them. Not just that you cover your mistakes with, with, with a, a sacrifice, right? He cares about your moral life. Um, but, uh, but Jesus also sees himself as the fulfillment of the sacrifices of the old Testament. He himself, like when Jesus is born, Mary in Luke, Mary offers the two turtle doves, right? For for her purity, right? In the temple, she offers them like that involves Jesus. This is associated with the birth of Christ, right? Because of not because of any sin in Jesus or something, it's, it's all purity related stuff. And so she offers those when Jesus heals early on, earlier on in Mark, is it chapter one or two? He, um, he heals a man. I believe it's a leper and here it is. Yeah. Mark chapter one, he heals this leper. Um, oh no, it's his hand. Oh, he has a leper. It's both. Okay. And a leper came to him. I'll show you the verse came to him, imploring him and kneeling said to him, if you, if you will, you can make me clean moved with pity. He stretched out his hand, oh, Jesus stretches and touched him and said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And look at what Jesus tells him to do next. Imagine if you believe that the Bible is rejecting sacrifice, that Jesus in particular is like sacrifice is bad. Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. The cleansing of, that Moses commanded was an, op, a, a, an animal offering. Here, here's the passage, Leviticus 14. This shall be the law of le the leprous person for the day he's, of his cleansing. He shall be brought to the priest and the priest shall go out of the camp and the priest shall look. Then if the case of the leprous disease, in the case, um, the disease is healed in the leprous person, the priest shall command them to take for him who is to be cleansed two live clean birds, right? And cedar wood and scarlet yarn and hyssop. And there's a whole uh, order in which this whole thing takes place to illustrate that he's been cleansed. But the birds, the birds are the sacrifice. So do you get the idea that Jesus... He, he has, a, he doesn't have a, a projection theology where ends up being a rejection theology. I reject all, a lot of that old Testament stuff. Instead, he has a fulfillment theology that was there and it was good and it was needed to teach you about me and I'm fulfilling it, not rejecting it. There's a big difference there. And I, I hope that helps. Um, number nine, 100% savage says, I know that we are made in the image and likeness of God and are called God's children. But what are angels to God? Are they made in the image and likeness of God? Are they God's children? This is a, surprisingly a more difficult question to uh, answer <laughs> than uh, than it may seem uh, for me anyway. But I'll, I'll I'll give you a few points that I think are very helpful. One is um, first, it's challenging. Um, <clears throat> in Job, they're called sons of God. Angels are called sons of God. So th that term is used a couple times, um, referring to angels. This probably is in reference to their, their status, not, not like God, not in the same sense that we are children of God. Okay. So the term is being used, but it's in a different fashion. For instance, sons of the prophets doesn't, is a term that the Bible uses, but it doesn't refer to biological children of the prophets. You, you get the idea? Like it, the term can be used in other ways. So it's probably referring to them as being like disembodied, powerful, spiritual beings, sons of God. That's probably how it's being used there, but it is used. Um, 
when it here's another challenge though when it comes to trying to just define what it means to be in the image of god it, it's not that hard to define until you ask the question you just asked 100 savage and you said hey but how are those qualities different than what angels have okay so what if you said, well personhood intellectual powers right like i have high intellectual powers at least compared to all other created things um i have an eternal spirit okay maybe that's what it means to be in the image of god okay but but angels have all those qualities too that's interesting, huh? Right. So others say, well, I'm, I'm, but I'm God's representative on earth, ruling, governing, having dominion on the earth. And so there's like a representation that's there. Okay. Well, that's something I don't, you wouldn't really say angels have. They're more like, they're powerful, but they're in a different role. Um, but there's, there's two things that are very different. And one of them that, that come to my mind right now, one of them is that humans have a relational experience with God that angels don't have. I get to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. I get to be united to God for all eternity. So there seems to perhaps be something in my very design that is different fundamentally than angels who don't experience this. That may be connected to this image of God thing. Um, and the other difference is that they might be called sons of God by virtue of some of their qualities. They're not like the things of the earth. They're heavenly beings. They're disembodied. They're, they don't have bodies. They're, they're spirit beings. Okay. So you could, and they're powerful. Okay. So you could, you could say there's sins of God in that sense, but as a Christian, I'm a child of God in a very different sense. God, uh, adopts me as his child. This is very, this is the doctrine of adoption, which is a very rewarding thing to study in theology. I'm adopted. I'm his child. He's my father, not merely by his power or by any similitude of me and him, but by adoption, relational claiming that he's done through Christ. So. I'm his child in a very different fashion. An angel cannot make this claim. And so I, I, I would look at those two things as offering a couple big differences. Number 10, Tara Carlson says in Matthew 2, 19 through 22, was Joseph's second dream, verse 22, from God. God says, all men who, uh, all who mean to kill you are dead, but God warns them again. Some translators Translations in verse 22, leave out God. Is this a contradiction? Okay, I'm going to have to look this up with you. Matthew 2, 19 through 22. Let's read it together and see if we can think about it. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Okay, this is Jesus' adopted dad, or his, you know, Mary's husband. And... Um, he says, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. Those who sought the child's life are dead. Then he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus, um, or Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. Okay, so I'm just going to say um, we should probably just not over read this part of verse 20 those who sought the child's life are dead it was herod the great who tried to kill jesus and he sent whoever to do the job um, herod died herod died he's the one who died he was the one who was seeking to kill jesus initially that doesn't mean there wouldn't be any worry or animosity from his descendants but herod himself he died now when he died his kingdom was broken up into his descendants various other guys also named herod just to confuse everyone who reads history and um but herod the great he died his kingdom was was broken up and the people who stepped into the roles that he used to have didn't have the power he had 
but Archelaus did. Archelaus, well, he didn't, he sort of did. Very briefly, he had a little bit of power and then boom, Rome took it away, if I recall correctly from studying on this. Um, and Arch Archelaus presented a new threat to Jesus, not the same as the threat that was going to kill him initially. And so um, he goes to a different location. So those who sought the child's life are dead. I would say refers to Herod and the power of his, his kingdom, which has been split. That doesn't mean there's never going to be a threat to Jesus in the future. It just means that that initial threat's gone. And so they can return to the land of Israel, but they choose to go to um, Galilee, Nazareth in particular, in order to avoid uh, Archelaus and his area in Judea. Um, that maybe that's because initially Archelaus had similar power to his dad, but they took it away. They took it away. And then there was no longer, you couldn't call the Herods kings anymore after that. There was no more, no more King Herod anymore. Um, I hope that that helps. And we'll go to question number 11. But we'll go to the cat cam too. Oh, oh look, she's just ignoring everybody. Hey, say hi. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's... There she... <laughs> say hi to people. She just wants to lick me. All right, anyway. <laughs> she has this thing where she... Yeah, pet pet her. She wants to lick me. It's like... It's a moxie thing. All right. Number 11, uh, Lasix 97 says it's estimated that 60% of natural conceptions fail to implant in the uterus and that at least 50 billion people lived until now. Does that mean there are around 75 billion people in heaven? Um, I don't know the answer to this question. Truly a challenging question. Um, uh, I don't know. Uh, it's possible. Um, so this let me, there's two debates that come up with this. Okay. One of them is the abortion debate, which you're not bringing up, but I'm going to bring up because I know it's in people's minds when I talk about this. So, um, they'll be like, Hey, there's, there's like miscarriages that happen all the time in nature. Doesn't that mean it's okay to abort? Doesn't it mean abortion is not that big of a deal. Um, but we are in a fallen world and death happens in nature all the time. Like we could look at the statistics of how many children die of malnourishment across the world that doesn't mean it's okay to starve children until they die. Like that's, that, that's horrific logic to think, um, deaths caused by natural causes, excuse murder. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, that's wrong. Okay. The second debate, the second debate is about the soul. And I don't know that we have a clear answer in scripture on this. If we do, I'm just not aware of it. Okay. It's possible. There's plenty. I don't know, but the debate goes like this. At what point does the human being have a soul. Okay. Definitely an embryo at any stage is a, is a human, a living human being. Like there should be no debate about this from the, after, after conception, when you have sperm and egg, you don't have a living human. When you combine them, you have a living human now for sure. This is, this is, it seems to me beyond debate. Um, but when does the soul happen? So there's different theories within that Christians have on this. And one theory is that the, when the sperm and egg come together and life is created that soul, the soul is, is created right then, or is like by God just created magic, not magically, that was a horrible word choice, created, um, miraculously by God at that moment, boom, or that it's of, of a natural thing that the soul is literally something that like is somehow the combination of sperm and egg, sperm and egg, just like it creates DNA, it creates a soul, an immaterial soul. And if that's the case, then I would think that they're going to be in heaven. Others think that this might happen later or that maybe the soul is, uh, is there, but isn't 
like viable yet like like the soul doesn't have this living beyond the death of the body quality yet others think that ensoulment happens at some point during pregnancy here's the problem with this though is this is where they just start making stuff up in my mind it's like okay oh i think ensoulment happens at week six because at week six, this happens. Like, or maybe when the heart begins to beat, that's when insolment happens. Or maybe when when the baby begins to feel pain, that's when insolment happens. And I'm like, you're just it. Just, it just sounds to me like everyone's just making stuff up. We don't know the answer to this question. So, if you were to look at a at, at an embryo and you're like, there might be a human soul, or there might not, but there's definitely a living human being. I'm thinking that the only rational thing to do is to treat this 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 little human as though it has a soul. Because what if you're wrong? Think about it. What if you're wrong? You know, if you look in a, a this analogy I've heard from Greg Kokel, um, you look at a burning building and you you see it on fire and you think to yourself, or no, 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 I'm sorry. Uh, it's a demolition analogy. Here's how, it, if I remember correctly, forgive me. Great cocoa if I get it wrong. But the analogy is like this. You have a building and you're going to demolish it. You're going to blow it up. You know, use controlled explosions to cause it to, to fall down. And you, you know, you do all your checks before you are able to like hit the button or push down the, the press the, the, the lever or whatever it is. And you do all your checks to make sure what? That the building is empty. The building is empty. And suppose you are, you're the guy who's going to push the button. You're about to hit the button. And someone says, is the building empty? And you hear people arguing. One guy goes, I think it's empty. And the other guy goes, I don't know if it's empty. It might not be empty. And then you ask the question, the all important question, did you confirm that it was empty? And they both go, no, we have no way of confirming that it's empty. We just are guessing based upon like with the idea of insolment, we're just guessing based upon sort of like whimsical ideas that we're coming up with. Then guess what you can't do? You can't hit the button to blow up the building. As long as you don't know, you cannot hit that button. And as long as you don't know, you, you cannot, you cannot touch um, that issue. I think you need to treat every human like they're a full human, lest you be wrong. Number 12, Jimmy Butler has a question. <clears throat> How do we know when we feel the Holy Spirit that it isn't a trick from Satan making us think that it's God? How do you know Jesus's resurrection wasn't a false miracle or wonder by Satan? Okay, there are two questions here. The first one, Jimmy Butler, you ask, how do you know that when you feel the Holy Spirit, it's not a trick from Satan? Um, here you're asking me to try to give you tools to evaluate your own feelings. I don't think that's really very possible, right? What I can do is give you internal tools, but I can give you external tools. If the thing that you think the Holy Spirit's telling you disagrees with scripture, then, then it's not the Holy Spirit. That seems pretty easy. Um, if the thing that you're feeling is very similar to other feelings you've had lots of other times, then you should not rely upon it. You know, you've, I've had that feeling when I was coming up with my own ideas. I've had that feeling lots of times. I've had that feeling many, many, on many occasions, but now I, maybe it's the Holy Spirit. Then you should act like you don't know and you should not rely upon the belief that this is the Holy Spirit when you're not sure. Um, and then finally, your second question, how do you know Jesus's resurrection wasn't a false miracle or wonder by Satan? Um, if there's a Satan, <laughs> he really blew it. He really blew it when he faked the resurrection of Jesus and started Christianity and caused people from around the world to give up paganism and worship the God of Israel. Like, boy, man, that Satan's like, he's like the worst <laughs> at his job. Um, here, here's, a, here's my pushback on this, Jimmy. Um, 
how on earth do you know or even think like really you have to give me a reason to think that satan faked the resurrection of jesus you can't just make up a wild crazy theory like that and have no evidence for it you got to have some evidence on the side of the resurrection of christ i have um, the eyewitness account, multiple appearances of Jesus. I've got the willingness of the, of the witnesses to die for the belief that Jesus had risen from the dead. I have Jesus's own predictions about his death, death and resurrection. I, which you can build a historical case that he really said that whether you believe the Bible's inspired or not. Um, I have the old Testament that demonstrates the need for the death and resurrection of the Messiah. And I've got Satan trying to fight him the whole way, you know, so if you're gonna have any sort of any even remotely biblical view of Satan, none of this works. So here's what I'm going to suggest is Jimmy, you you've done here what I've seen many, many, many times. Someone comes up with a wild and maybe it's not even your theory. Maybe someone else just asked you this and you were just curious how I would answer. So don't take this personal, but whoever says this and they're like impressed by it, right? They ask the question, how do you know, how do you know that there, there Jesus wasn't like, it was all experiment by aliens, right? The resurrection, they just wanted to see what we would do. It's an experiment. We're all part of an experiment. People who can come up with wild, world-changing, life-changing theories with zero evidence and just a what-if and believe that theory are radically irrational people. Like, I don't say this to insult them. Like, I, I would grab my other shoulder and be like, you got to wake up. You can't just say crazy stuff and believe it for no reason. You got to wake up. You got to pay attention to reality and truth. And so, um, yeah, um, I've, I've heard atheists say this about like along the same lines. Well, maybe God does exist, but maybe he's an evil God and this is all just a big joke to him and he's and he, and he made Christianity just to trick you so he could laugh at you. And I just want to sort of look at them and be like, you're going to go with that? <laughs> like that like that's that that's preferable to you than Christianity? You're going to go with that. You you really you believe that. Like you you would hold to that as equally probable as Christianity. All right. Have fun. <laughs> Number 13. Um Mont Monster M says, yo, Mike, I like to draw and write fiction in my spare time. And I want to glorify God as best as I can doing this. Is there anything I should do or avoid as a Christian artist? Thanks for your ministry. Well, I'm, I, I can't, uh, I'm not really an artist in that sense. Um, so I, I, there's a lot, I won't be able to tell you here and I don't want to try to like clumsily jump into what is a whole discipline and act like I know a whole lot about it as far as how a Christian can function that way, in that way. Um, one of the best things you could do is to try to find other Christian artists who are willing to draw lines and make hard choices and sacrifice in order to honor Christ in their art and in the things that they do, writing fiction, that, that sort of thing. Another thing you can do, because those people are going to be like-minded, right? They set Christ above art. If you have people who set art above Christ, I would not connect with them. You know what I mean, right? But if they set Christ above their art and their art is in service to the Lord, then Man, find those people, connect with them. Another thing you can do, though, is actually find Christian, you know, fiction writers, um, artists, draw, people who draw. You could find them who have done a good job in the past. Who has been the really successful, really world-impacting people? And so you could look at people like C.S. Lewis. I mean, he's one example, but there's many others um, that you could you could find and look to them for inspiration on on how to how to do things. I don't think as a Christian artist, every single piece of art you do has to be overtly and obviously Christian, but it but it will cause you to not do certain things. I'm not going to draw a nude portrait as a Christian artist, right? Because that would be immoral. I know this is 
This is like so, such a shocker in our culture today that that would be, but it's art, man. It's just, but it's art. Okay. Yeah. Moving on. <laughs> I hope that some of those things help. Crystal P says, my grandma rejects Christianity because she claims relying on the forgiveness of a savior teaches us we don't have to be responsible for our own actions. How can I help her untangible, uh, untangle that belief? Um, she rejects Christianity because she thinks if you rely on forgiveness, the forgiveness of a savior, it teaches us we don't have to be responsible for our own actions. Um, I mean, well, part of it would be to show her that in Christianity, that's not true. Um, there is still accountability for our actions, but we aren't going to be eternally punished for our sins. And there's a difference. So, and I'm not talking about purgatory here, <laughs> but there is um, consequences in this life for the decisions I make and the life that I live. There are consequences in eternity in the sense of treasures in heaven, right? Like, do what do I have to show in eternity in a sense, and, and the analogy of scripture is, is, is exactly that is, is treasures in heaven or, you know, Jesus has store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. So the, the idea is that the life you live now is storing up some sort of eternal blessing for you and you will not have that. There's something you're not going to be experiencing there. And that'll be because of the life you live now, even as a Christian, uh, but you'll still be saved. Uh, first Corinthians, or is it second Corinthians? I'm blanking right now, but it talks about how, um, each one will be tested right? And the works that we've done will be tested by God, whether we built, and here's an analogy about building, right? Wood, hay, stubble, or if it was like gold, stone, precious jewels, uh, like lasting and valuable things or temporary things that would just be burned and destroyed, but the person will still be saved. So there is still an accountability for Christians and how we live our lives, just not eternal punishment, just not even, not even punishment in eternity at all, but accountability. Yes. Um, but I also would ask this um, and say, like, you know, Grandma, you you really don't want forgiveness. Like, you really don't want forgiveness. You think, have you ever forgiven anyone? Or do you think that you forgiving them means that they're not responsible for their actions? Forgiveness is about restoring a relationship. Forgiveness is about being being made not guilty for the crimes for which that I've committed. And if you're, your grandma to think, offering forgiveness means you're not responsible. It seems like she may be, forgive me for analyzing someone off of such little information. So this is just a maybe. She may be suffering from a very strong degree of self-righteousness where she doesn't feel she needs forgiveness, but she thinks other people do. And it's a weakness on their part because they're just, they're just lousy people, not like her, right? But she doesn't really need forgiveness. So I think what I would want to do with her is try to maybe go to like Ray Comfort's material and walk her through some of the law to help reveal the sin that's in her heart and in her life. So she realizes she needs forgiveness and saying, I'm going to go to hell because I'd rather be responsible for what I do is, is, um, that, that attitude goes away when we realize how much we all de desperately need the grace and forgiveness of Christ. So law to the proud, um, the, the law, the moral rules that she herself fails, whether she realizes it or not. And, uh, I think Ray Comfort's good at doing that with people. Number 15, Philagape says, day of the Lord question, what must come first per 2 Thessalonians 2.3? Does apostasia, that's the Greek word, does, does that mean a spiritual falling away slash rebellion or a physical departure as in the rapture? Thank you for your ministry. Okay, these are, this is a tough question for me. I'm going to talk about it with you guys, but I have to admit that because I'm unresolved on some of these issues. So 
amongst the debates on end time stuff, there's a bunch of micro debates on other, on related issues. So this this one is there's two sides. There's probably other sides, but here are two sides in this debate. Um, 2 Thessalonians 2.3, let no one deceive you in any way for that day will not come. This is the day of the Lord. Unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself. And he does all these things. Um, that phrase, the rebellion, that's in the ESV. Let's read that same word in some different translations. Uh, the NASB, it says it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. Okay, the NIV puts it this way, that they will not come until the rebellion occurs. New King James Version says it will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed. Um, I'll do it. Let me just, here's what I'm going to do because I'm not resolved on this issue myself. I'm going to do a word study with you guys right now since it's only one word we're looking at and it won't, I don't think this word will take too long. Let's, let's see. We'll look at it together. Um, da, 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 da. Apostasia, we'll look at BDAG, BDAG, if you want to look for an actual like Greek resource that you guys might want to check out um, for looking up words like this. BDAG is a, a reliable and well-respected one. Um, BDAG, it's, it's a lexicon. So if you type in the search engine, BDAG lexicon, you'll find it. Um, apostasia, here's the word, right? Um, Defiance of established systems or authority. That's one possible definition. Another one is rebellion, abandonment, or breach of faith. Okay, so the word itself could mean, as you kind of alluded to in your question, it could mean, you know, the an actual rebellion, like an organized armed rebellion against a government. It could mean rebellion in some other lesser sense, just a rebellion in general. Abandonment. So this is not rebellion like we're fighting against you, but abandonment. We're all leaving you. It could mean breach of faith. Now, when you, when you combine these last two, when you look at the last two, it feels like it could be like sort of a bunch of people departing from Christ. They apostatize, the great apostasy, right? So a bunch of people are going to fall away from Christ. They depart from the church. Others could say there's going to be some sort of like rebellion. And these are, these are, I think the options that you pre presented for us in, um, does it mean spiritual falling away slash rebellion or a physical departure as in the rapture? Oh, the, though the option you give is the rapture. Okay. The rapture option. Here's the question we have. Does it fit into the word apostasia? Could apostasia be the rapture? Um, defiance of established system or authority, a rebellion, abandonment, breach of faith, the basic meanings of this word does not lend itself towards the idea of the rapture, in my opinion. Okay, based upon just a quick word study, we, we could easily look up all the references to it. But it generally seems to have a negative connotation. Whereas the rapture would be a great hope. So in this verse, right, the falling away, the apostasy, that whatever this is going to be, it seems to me that it would be hard I'd be hard pressed to see the rapture in that verse in Second uh, Thessalonians. Um, yeah. Now I do believe, you know, in Paul's letter to the Thess letters to the Thessalonians, he talks about the, us being caught away. The, in my mind, the rapture is a biblical doctrine. The question is, when does it happen? Um, but often people, when they say the rapture, what they really mean is pre-trib um, rapture, and that's I'm, I'm not taking a side on that. <laughs> I just think we're going to be caught in, into the air and ever be with the Lord and then and the dead in Christ will be raised. That's an event that really happens um, clearly. But I don't think 2 Thessalonians is talking about it. Number 16. 
Kateko, I might be pronouncing your name wrong, sorry, Kateko, from South Africa says, can you shed some light on what Revelation 21.8 really means by the cowardly or the fearful having a special place in the lake of fire? Um, let's look at it. <laughs> All right. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. I'm going to suggest, uh, Kateko, that this isn't giving a special treatment to those to, to specifically cowardly or fearful people. I think that rather the cowardly here in two things. One, the, the cowardly in Revelation 21 are an overall group of people who have ultimately um, been afraid of the world, but not afraid of the Lord. And they, 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 they abandon the faith or they reject the faith. Maybe they're Christians in name only, but they do not hold to faith in the face of even torture or death. And so they're called cowardly. Um, the faith, but, but then that's, that's the first thing. The, so what I'm going to suggest is we shouldn't overread this and suggest that God hates people that are scared of anything or something like that. Like this is specifically, I think, cowardly in regards to standing up for truth, standing up for the truth of Christ and holding fast to, to the, to the truths, the Christian truths in the face of suffering or persecution. That is a, a time where our cowardice must be absent, but someone who's like has arachnophobia or something, I don't think it's talking about that. Um, Okay, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, this is the second point I want to make. This is an inclusive list, not a specialty list, right? Like cowardly, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars. Everybody who's not part of the kingdom of God, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire. It is not suggesting a special special segment of a place in the lake of fire for a cowardly person. It's just talking about heaven or hell. Which one? They're going to be in hell. Although I do think the hell experience is unique to the to the sins of the person. Um, but that's a different study. Anonymous has a question. Number 17. It seems like conservative Christians are biblical with respect to a personal morality, to personal morality, to the exclusion of societal justice and liberal ones, vice versa. Why is one more important? How do we reconcile the extremes? Okay, so I, I think I see what you're getting at here. I, if I could try to like guess what your thought process is, and forgive me if I'm wrong, I'm just trying to answer the best I can here. Um, you're saying, hey, conservative Christians are like, hey, yeah, you, you, stay, um, you stay pure until marriage. You, you stay faithful, you know? For divorce is not something we're going to talk about, man. We're going to we're going to make this marriage work. We're going to honor Christ. Um, that their views on gender and um, sexuality and stuff like that, like, are more biblical. And then the liberal ones are more interested in like societal justice. Like, we need to end say systemic racism, and we need to like um, champion the cause of the poor, and um, you know, take the money from the rich and give it to the poor, and that kind of thing. Um, what I'm going to suggest is. Here, I think, um, and I'm going to be really honest with you guys, and some of you are not going to, some of you are going to love it, some of you are not going to like it, um, but, I'm, but I'm really trying to be just straightforward and honest with you. I think that the conservative Christians actually have um, generally a consistent view about these things. They just believe 
um, more in personal freedoms and in personal responsibility. And the liberal, the more liberal ones who are more politically liberal, which is really what this is getting at, not only theologically, but also politically liberal, that they're more interested in, um, in, uh, less freedom and less responsive, less personal responsibility. And it's more about nurture and nature are sort of the way we view the environment and people. And we don't really look at free will and individual choices as much. So this is why liberal Christians, when they look, I think when they look at someone who say is living a gay lifestyle, they see someone who is born gay and, and this is changing. Uh, the science doesn't seem to support this and they're changing. Now they're talking about sexual fluidity. So now they're just trying to throw out all this is, this is the next 10 years. You guys all in the liberal, you know, thinking all, um, sexual rules and policies are all oppressive and, and harmful and we need to cast them out. And the righteous thing is expressing sexual diversity and sexual fluidity and all this other stuff. That's where it's headed. Um, but part of that is, is because we're looking at people as purely products of nature and nurture. So we think, um, that there isn't like this free will and this high calling that would be, they see even Christian values as oppressive, but if we suggest that they're more about social justice and then conservative Christians are less about social justice, I think what they have is different visions of what social justice actually is, right? So social justice, if I'm primarily looking through, say, a, forgive me if I talk past anybody here, critical race theory and critical theory. If I look at social justice through critical theory, I'm going to come to those liberal conclusions. But if I reject this sort of like intersectionality and oppressor oppressed kind of like evaluation, and I look at more, sorry, I think a biblical view where I see all mankind as sinful, all in need of restraint, self-restraint and control and self-control, right? And commitment to Christ. And that oppressor and oppressed is usually just a byproduct of, of mankind being wicked. And this one had power and that one didn't. It's not because of this sort of intersectionality issues. When I look at it like that, I have different solutions to the same problems, right? I, I want this side, oh, we want equal equal treatment under law. And this side says, no, no, we actually have to make unequal treatment because we have different people groups who have to be treated differently under law in order to like create equality as an end result. We have to engineer equality. We don't create a platform where equality can play out. We have to engineer it. This is just different approaches to social justice. So, um, how do we reconcile the extremes? I, I think though that, um, we go back to the root and we recognize that the foundational teachings of critical theory that end up supporting LGBT, um, uh, undermining traditional marriage, um, supporting the div division of our culture into race, ethnicity, and sexual preference groups, instead of sinners and saints instead of the Christian worldview, which is like, Hey, y'all been sinners. Y'all need to become saints. Y'all need to be turned to Christ. And then in Christ, there is, there just is none of that. We're just, we're all equal in Christ and rich, poor doesn't matter. We're all treated the same. Um, I think we have to become biblical. So the scripture kind of makes me conservative, even if I don't consider myself Republican, because I think that's a different question. Number 18, Queen Kiera says, how do I overcome self hate. Whenever I look at myself, I see a sinner and a failure. And it's hard to see God as a loving father when all I can see him as is a judge. And I'm afraid of him at times. Well, queen, here's my response to you. Um, you have to let scripture rebuke you. Like, please hear me. 
you have to let scripture tell you you're wrong. And then you have to submit to that and say, yes, I'm wrong. Because what you're describing is a situation where you're not trusting what God's word has said. And then you're like, how do I overcome my lack of believing the love that God has for me? And the answer is, well, you trust scripture more than your feelings. And um, you simply say, I don't feel like God loves me, but but this is a mean thing for me to do to God, to believe my feelings over the love he's shown me through Jesus on the cross. Like he sent Jesus, he died on the cross for you. God has demonstrated his love for us and that we were, while we were sinners, Christ died for the ungodly, Romans 5, 8. He showed you his love for you. And you look at the cross and you think, no, I think he hates me. And it's like, no, you just, you just have to realize you don't feel it because your feelings are just weird. Like many of us are. all of us have been there times where our feelings go completely contrary to truth. And we have to learn to say to our feelings, I feel you, but I don't trust (laughs) you. This is, this is the thing you got to learn. So queen, please. uh, And her name uh, is uh, K W E E N. Just anybody who's wondering. Um, But uh, you, you just, which I I think you're a girl, but either way, what you got to do is you got to learn to take God at his word. He sent his son to die on the cross for you. He sent the gospel into your life. He's drawing you to himself. He's paid the price for your sins. Like he literally suffered and died to save you for your sin. You, you got to trust the love that God has for you. You got to learn that. And this feelings of self-hate and all this, I think the path, one of the things you do on the path to restoring yourself from this is to say, I'm not going to deny my sinfulness. I'm going to recognize that it has been taken care of on the cross. So when I think of my failures and I think of my sins and I think of how upset I am that I've done these things, I'm going to recognize that he has paid for those things. And beware of the strange um, self-focused self-hate that I'm not saying you're going through this, but this is something that many of us go through. And it's this feeling that um, by getting mad at myself, I'm sort of creating a separate self that did the things that I'm upset about. And the way we do this is, um, you know, when I have seen this happen many, many times, I do something wrong in the past, maybe even in the present. And then I think to myself, man, I hate myself. And you see what I've done? I hate myself. It sort of creates almost like there's two different personas. There's the me that can't stand that other guy that did all those things. Man, I hate myself. And I am now the victim of myself. Oh. I'm no longer the perpetrator. I'm the victim. I'm like, oh, I've done these things that are wrong. And there's just a danger here in starting to think that you're the victim of your sins instead of the sinner. So this is where I'm like, self-hate almost makes me too important. <laughs> instead, I should have repentance. Self-hate turns to, turns to making me like a victim of my own self and oh, woe is me. When really, here's the broken world I'm creating. Here's the lives I've sinned against. Here's the God I've offended. And, and he's willing to grace me with forgiveness. And I'm like, no, I'm busy hating myself. And he's like, you're just kind of like self-obsessed over here. <laughs> so I don't know if that helps. Man, I hope it does. Learn to, to, to say to your feelings, I feel you, but I don't trust you. And then trust the word of God. Number 19, Lil McNick says, Mike, what do you think about the marks of the stigmata? Is there any way this could be biblical, even if someone isn't Catholic? Um, 
So the stigmata is like where, you know, marks appear on the hands, uh, or this, the story goes, marks appear on the hands, um, and maybe on the feet and, and in some cases, some stories that, that they're even bleeding from the, from the head so that the marks of Christ, as the story goes, appear on people. I've never tried to vet whether this has really happened or not. I know lots of people believe it has probably lots of others are inclined to be skeptical and think it hasn't. Um, but let's just say, is the idea biblical? Well, are there any others in the scripture who suddenly showed the marks of Jesus on their bodies? No, there's one reference to Paul where he says, I bear the marks of Christ. And I think when in that passage, he's talking about the physical persecution he experienced. He's not talking about some stigmata thing where he's like, y'all respect me more because I, I have a, the stigmata. He literally just means like he'd been stoned and he'd been beaten and he'd been put in prison. The, the sufferings of Christ related to his faith in Christ, his suffering for his faithful service to Christ. That's what he was bearing, showing to people. And so it kind of should have earned him some credibility with them about his genuineness. Um, so yeah, there, there's just nothing in scripture about this. Okay. So it, biblical, unbiblical, it's just not there. It's just not there. Um, then you said, is there any way this could be biblical, even if someone isn't Catholic? Um, let's say that the stigmata did happen. God miraculously just causes wounds to appear on you that appeared on Jesus. I'm going to say off the top of my head that this seems a little strange because the nature of Jesus's wounds are such that he's suffering for me. So why are the wounds he suffered being projected onto me now? That seems a little strange. There is suffering for the sake of the gospel, but Jesus's suffering was also for the sake of actually getting us saved. And I, I, I so I'm going to say there's like a question I'm going to have about that. Um, and the next issue I'm going to have is that someone shows up and they're like, I have the stigmata is that the way that Christians treat this person now is that they're some sort of spiritual guru with super insights and whatever they say, we're just going to believe it. And I get a little concerned about the impact it has in that regard. I think that's a little bit of a, of a concern. So, um, yeah. Now if, if someone wants to say, Oh, the stigmata proves the Catholic church is real because in this Catholic church, we have the stigmata again. I go, yes, see, this is exactly the kind of thing I'm worried about <laughs> is that we're not establishing our theology with what God has revealed in scripture. We're like using weird extra biblical experiences, um, in a way that I think is untrustworthy. <clears throat> Number 20 final question. And then I'll show you my cat before we go. Kevin Lionel says, if God wants you to be saved more than you do, why doesn't God reveal himself to everyone as he did to Paul? Wouldn't more people be saved if they had had the same road to Damascus experience that Paul had? Um, okay, that hypothetical is a little bit challenging to answer. The, the second question, um, how many people would genuinely come to Christ if they had had a greater revelation of Jesus? And there's a lot of people who say they would, but I don't know. I don't know. There's plenty of people who are like, God, if you get me out of this situation, I'm going to serve you every day of my life. And they get out of that situation and they live totally normal. Like they, nothing changes. So, so I'm not sure. I'm not sure how often that is the case, but let me say this. Um, what's hit, what's behind a question like this. If God wants me to be saved, then why doesn't he reveal himself like he, to everyone, like he did with Paul, the what's behind this is the assumption that if God reveals himself more clearly than he has, that more people will get saved. That's the assumption. Um, 
I think what we can say is that if God revealed himself in more clear ways, although I think his revelation of who God is is pretty clear in creation. I think how clear it is is pretty clear already. But but let's say he made it even more clear. He shows up in everyone's room and he says, I'm Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. All that you heard was true. I have a question about this. Is Would it only increase belief in Jesus intellectually or would it increase salvation? People who've committed their hearts to Christ, who've given their lives to Christ. Because I know plenty of atheists. I mean, like I've interacted with the atheist community. They make videos about me every week or two. <laughs> Someone in their in their groups uh, online. And I've heard many times people say that even if Christianity was true, they would reject it on principle because they're, they're so convinced that they're more righteous than God. It's just, it's just, the, there's a darkness that's there in many cases. And so they've said, yeah, even if it was true, I reject it. Even if it's true, I spit upon it. And so you got to say, yeah, just because it's true doesn't mean people follow it. Plenty of people have been convinced intellectually that Christianity is true and did not take a step to follow it. You've probably met people who were like, well, I think it's true, but I'm just doing my own thing. I've met people like that. And you're like thinking, wow, I guess it's not just about knowing it's true. It's about committing your life to Christ. It's about trusting in Christ. It's about that kind of faithfulness to Christ, not just knowledge of Jesus. So, um, so yeah, I think that that's the problem. That's where this breaks down. If people are like that and the revelation they've received reveals their actual heart towards God, they've rejected already the revelation God's already made available to them by confronting them and showing them more and more and more. If they continue to reject, it's only elevating their condemnation. So this is a two-edged sword. Jesus shows up. You put faith in him. Great, you got saved. You reject him. You're even more condemned because your revelation of knowledge was even greater. So it is a bit of a two-edged sword. Um, there's a couple thoughts on that, Kevin. I know it's a challenging question. Um, as I always say with why doesn't why doesn't God do this questions, why doesn't God do this, why doesn't God do that, is that we have to just have a little bit of humility, a little bit of human awareness that we're trying to say, well, I think God should do this. And if you've ever had a job you knew really well and someone else told you how they thought you should do it and they didn't know your job, you probably know the danger of humans telling God how he should do his job and thinking that we can judge his performance. Well, I, you should have done that. You should have done that. This is a very common, popular thing. We, we look at God as we're evaluating him. We're approving or disapproving of, well, I read this in the Bible. I don't think he should have done that. And I just want to remember what, what life was like when we were on the outside of a job thinking we knew how it was done. And then we got on the inside and we actually started doing it. Like if I followed the, the advice for YouTube that I get from people every day, I would destroy my, my, my online reach because like, people who don't do the job don't understand the job. <laughs> and so, uh, that's just how it is. And no one understands God's job like God does. So this is Moxie and she just wanted to say goodbye. All right, Mox. Yeah. Say goodbye. Thank you guys. It's been good. She just, there, there is a face. There's a face. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> anyway, it's been great. I, I enjoy doing this Friday stream with you guys. You guys have made this happen because it was your constant asking for Q&As and then your responses to them that, that made it happen. And, and this is something that fits my philosophy of, of thinking biblically because I believe that to learn how to really process things biblically, these kind of random questions and just bringing up a scripture and working through it thoughtfully, this is really helpful. It's like, you're not just learning a little piece of something. You're getting a tool set that helps you approach problems and issues and scripture in your life and work through them on your own. 
Like this is sharpening you as a, as, as a tool that's able to rightly divide the word of God. That's the agenda. And I think it's working and, uh, I'm happy for it. Um, <clears throat> yes, very good stuff. So, um, I don't, there's anything else. Just a reminder to update your Bible Thinker app. If you have one on your smartphone, go ahead and do that update. Other than that, thank you very much.